John chapter 15, we're going to be looking at nine verses this morning, verses 9 to 17. And once you position yourselves there, we are on lesson number 155 in the books. I don't care if you open up and look at them because I won't be following them very much anyway. But our lesson is entitled, The Love of the Lord. It's always good when you can talk about love, isn't it? Preachers always like to talk about love. We'll enjoy it today because next week, guess what we talk about? Hatred. If you think I'm kidding, look at number 156. But we'll be talking about the hatred of the Lord, Lord willing, next week. And there's a lot of that going on right now. Hatred of the Lord against Christians and against anything right. All right, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Would you bow with me, Father? Thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity we have to gather together for the sole purpose of of, uh, getting to know your son better. We know, Father, that your word promises that if we draw near unto you, you will draw near unto us. And that is what we desire to do here this morning. We thank you that we have this hour of the day that we can set aside for the refreshment of our spirits and for fellowship not only with one another, with sisters in Christ who we've come to love, but also with yourself, that we can fellowship with you through your word. May we truly, Father, enjoy a yieldness to you that allows your spirit to have complete freedom to work in our lives unhindered. Our hearts are drawn to the thought of truly bearing fruit for you that remains and that has eternal consequences to it. We pray that you would therefore adjust us to yourself and use the truth of this passage this morning to expand our faith in a manner that would convince our wills to be utterly faithful to the works that you have called for each one of us to accomplish here while we're on on earth. May we show ourselves as workmen that need not be ashamed in rightly handling and studying the words of thy Son so that they abide in us. And may we be diligent in our obedience to them not just hearers, but doers of the words, that we might bear much fruit for your glory. And we know that these prayer requests are made in accordance to your will, because you've revealed them in your word. And so we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In every single aspect of life, words are the building blocks of all communication. Have you ever stopped to think how important words are? I couldn't even communicate with you this morning without words, could I? We cannot even think without using words. Did you ever realize that even our reasoning is dependent on vocabulary? You ever stop to think about that? You couldn't reason, you couldn't think without words. And that is why when God sent his son into the world, he sent him with words. He sent him with words. In fact, John's gospel, the gospel we're in right now, happens to begin by calling Jesus Christ what? The word. And that's because he is the one who not only spoke everything into existence, by just the power of his word, his spoken word. But he is the one who was sent here to communicate God to us, to reveal the Father to us. So it is through listening to him 
that we come to learn about not only God, but all three members of the Godhead, the Holy Trinity, but we learn about life itself, and we learn about the future. And we learn about how to have a right relationship with God, which is through his Son. So when we gather here every Tuesday morning, what do we gather here for? We gather here to, to hear the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not that we hear him speak to us audibly, but we do hear from him. How do we hear from him? Through his written word. Christianity is a faith that is based entirely on words. Christianity is preoccupied with words, isn't it? And we have to put our faith in the truth of those words. Now, Jesus was not only the word of God, but the word of God incarnate, but he was also the master of words. He was a master teacher, wasn't he? If ever there was one. He masterfully used words and he masterfully used word pictures He used common things of life, a lot of agricultural things that the people of his day were very familiar with. He used those in order to convey to his listeners deep spiritual truths. He knew very well that a a picture could be worth a million words. (laughs) And he used pictures very, very well. And that's why so much of his teaching was laced with analogies or metaphors or parables that very succinctly describe profound truths that otherwise could have taken volumes to explain. Just think of all the many insightful Uh, Truths that lie behind, for example, just his simple words, I am the good shepherd. Just those words, volumes of books have been written on what lies behind that simple statement. Or when he said, I am the light of the world. Or when when he said, I am the door. And as we know, in John 15, as we have been looking at for some two weeks, now into the third week, he used a metaphor with himself as the true vine and we his followers as branches and as we continue to look at his words we will find that really this metaphor of the vine and the branches continues on through verse 16 go ahead and look at verse 16 in that verse you'll see that he's still talking about bringing forth fruit fruit that would remain so he continues really with this analogy of the vine and the branches in the forefront, although he's going to add some new aspects to it. And he's going to change from calling his followers branches to calling us something even better, friends. And we're going to talk about that this morning. Well, the title, as I said, is The Love of the Lord. And now it's time that I would like to read the passage of Scripture for today's lesson. But what I really want to do is start all the way back at the beginning, John 15, verse 1, and read through to where we're going to finish up today, verse 17, so that you get, again, the whole flow of this vine branches analogy. All right? So look with me at John 15, 1, where Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean 
through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me and my what? Words abide in you. Ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. Now the passage of scripture for today begins with verse 9. He says, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. And that word continue is again the Greek word translated earlier as abide. Abide ye in my love. If you keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 11, these things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might be, might remain in you. And again, that word remain is the same Greek word for abide. That my joy might abide in you, you could say. And that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain. And what do you think that word remain is? Abide again. That whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. All right. Did you notice that in the passage for today's scripture, there's a lot of mention of the word love? That's why this lesson is the love of the Lord. I think that the word is found nine times in those nine verses, verses 9 to 17. And speaking of nine, look back at verse 9, where the Lord said, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Do you realize there the depth of what Jesus was saying? It's so easy to gloss over a verse like that because we've heard it so many times. But and, And I know this is a statement very familiar with us. Um, But it is by no means a simple statement. This is monumental. The Lord is telling his men, and of course all future believers, that he loves them. In other words, we could translate it as he loves you and he loves me just as much as his father loves him. That's monumental to think that Jesus loves us that much. And really, honestly, there is no way that we can ever comprehend how much God the Father loves God the Son. And the reason for that incomprehension is because divine love is measureless. It's infinite. 
It's eternal and it's infinite. There's no beginning and there's no end. The best that we can do to try to comprehend the love that God the Father has for God the Son is to get some kind of a a glimpse of the depth of it by reading Scripture, the Word of God. Scripture tells us that God loves His Son so much that He has put all things into His hands. Scripture tells us that He loves Him so much that He has given Him all life-quickening power. Resurrection power is Christ's. He also loves him so much that he gave his son all judgment. All judgment has been put into his son's hands. Those unbelievers who stand before the great white throne judgment will stand before who? Jesus, God the Son. He also, God also has given Jesus a name that is above every name. God loved his son with this same immeasurable love before the foundation of the earth was laid. And he also loved him with this same love when his son hang on an old wooden cross and literally became sin for you and I. God's love for the Lord Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, is eternal, it's unchanging, it's incomprehensible, and it's constant love. And it is this incomprehensible, infinite, unchanging love that the Father has for him that he tells us now he, Christ, the Son, has for you and I. Try to get that under your hat and think about it. And he says to them, look at the latter half of verse 9, continue ye in my love, which means, again, abide in my love. Again, he's giving a command. This is a command. No, no option here. Continue in my love. He's giving a command to believers to abide in him. But this time he changes the emphasis. You know, before he said abide in me, and then, it, then we learned that it was his words that were to abide in us. And now he says the same thing, except this time, what are we to abide in? His love, his love. He's essentially telling us that we can and should confidently abide, remain, continue in his love because nothing will ever remove that love from us. Was there anything that could remove the love of God the Father from God the Son? No, not ever. Not even on the cross. Nothing ever. So we have that same kind of confidence. These disciples and you and I could live out their lives and face whatever would come into their lives knowing that Jesus Christ loved them with an everlasting love. But don't miss the fact that he had to command his men and he had to command you and I to continue in his love, to abide in his love. Why did he have to command us to continue? Because the reason is because even though his love is eternal for us, if you're true vine on the uh, branch on the vine, his love for you is eternal and uh, unconditional and for, you know, uh, infinite, even though that is true, uh, our enjoyment of it and our relaxation, our confidence, you know, just kind of setting back and enjoying that love depends on us abiding in it. It's there. But we have to we have to have confidence in it and relax in it. Continuing or abiding in his love means that we have assurance of it. Again, that little analogy of the man driving with his wife sitting over there, you know, like I gave you last week. <laughs> it's not that his love has changed. He's still in the same position. It looks like her love has changed. She's the one who's sitting over there. 
Well, in verse 10, continuing with the subject of abiding in his love, the Lord told his men that unless they would submit themselves to him by obeying his commandments, they would not be able to rest in his love. Look at verse 10. He says, if ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. You know why he says that? Because disobedience, if you don't keep his commandments, what's that called? Disobedience. All right. If you don't, if you disobey, you break the fellowship. You're the one that moves over there. Okay. You're the one who breaks the fellowship. It clogs up disobedience, clogs up those little capillaries that run the sap of the vine up the stem, out to the branches. And the result is a lack of assurance on our part of his love. A disobedient believer demonstrates that he is not abiding in God's love because true abiding involves obedience, exactly. And you see, this is why Jesus always, always had confidence in his father's love for him. And he could, the Lord could, rest with all assurance in his father's love. He never, ever once doubted his father's love for him. Even when he was misunderstood by everyone else, including his own family members. Even when he was persecuted and scorned and despised and hated without any cause whatsoever. And slandered and mocked and and misjudged and betrayed. And when he was murdered unjustly by the very ones who he came to save. All of those terrible circumstances and all of the unbelievable trials that he went through by those he came to save. Um, He never, not in any one of those circumstances, did he ever doubt his father's love. Now, you and I, if we had been in his shoes, would we have doubted the father's love? Of course. If we went through even a tenth of what he went through, even one one hundredth of what he went through, we would have said, don't you care about me anymore? Have you forgotten about me? We'd say, what have I done? We wouldn't be resting in the Father's love. We'd think, hmm, he's really mad at me or something. You know, he doesn't love me anymore. That's what we'd say. You don't love me anymore, God. How could you let this happen to me? But the Lord Jesus never, ever doubted his Father's love. And here's the big question. Okay, here's the question. How could the Lord Jesus rest so confidently in his Father's love for him? Well... The reason is because he always, always obeyed him, right? He had kept his father's commandment. You see, what he's doing here is he's giving you and I the key. This is a little clue. Listen good. This is the key to be able to always abide confidently in Christ's love. You want to always be assured of his love, always rest in it? We all do, don't we? I want to never clog it and say, well, I don't think he loves me anymore. I must have really done something bad. The key is that we follow the Lord's example and we keep his commandments. Then, you see, if we're keeping his commandments, if we're obeying the scripture, the word of God, the Lord's commandments to us, then when something happens in our lives, we can know that we're in the center of his will So whatever is coming in our lives, 
obviously is something that has been orchestrated by him for what? For our own good. Now, there are things that could come into your lives that are the result, the consequences of your own sin, see? And there are other things that could be chastisement for sin. But if you're obeying the Lord and you're in the center of his will, then something comes into your life, unexpected or whatever, you can know that Romans 8.28 is really true for you. Now, Romans 8.28 is not true for everybody. It's certainly not true for unbelievers. What is Romans 8? We quote it all the time, but what does it really say? For we know that all things work together for good those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Who are those who love God? Those who obey. Remember John 14, 15, 14, 15. Jesus said, if ye love me, keep my commandments. So if we really love him, we're going to obey him. And we prove our love by obeying him. And the one who obeys him is proving their love. So if you put those two things together, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And now he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So you see how it works? We love him. We keep his commandments. We keep his commandments. And then we're able to abide in his love and know that he loves us. No matter what comes in our life, we know he loves us and he's working it out for good. You do know, don't you, that it is no small statement when Jesus said that he had kept his father's commandments. What was he really claiming there? Something you and I can't ever claim. He is claiming that he never committed any sin, that he had no sin. He was saying that he had kept his father's commandments in total obedience. And no mere sane man would ever be able to say that for fear that lightning might strike him dead. I would certainly never say it. But Jesus could make such a claim for, to sinlessness because he had always kept his father's law, his God, God's law. He all, he, remember he said this in John eighteen twenty nine, not 18, John eight twenty nine. He said he always did those things that pleased his father. Whew. I can't even imagine saying that after one day, one 24-hour cycle. I did everything today that pleased the Father. Mm. And his obedience was his expression of his love for his Father. Also, guess what? His obedience was a cheerful obedience. He didn't do it begrudgingly. He didn't obey the commands just because, well, that's what I have to do. He did it because he really wanted to show his father how much he loved him. It was a sincere, heartfelt desire to please his father. His meat, remember John 4, 34? He said that his meat, in other words, that which fed his soul, was to do the will of him who sent him. So law and love, law and love walked hand in hand in the Lord's life. And now he told his followers that this is the same way that they are to live as well. As he had obeyed his father and abode in his father's love, we are to abide in Christ. Obey Christ, excuse me. Obey Christ and abide in his love. We're to have that same law-love relationship. We're to love him so much that we delight in obeying him. Have you arrived there? 
Well, we, n- <laughs> we, we never do quite arrive until we're perfected, I don't think. But that should be the desire of our heart. It says in 1 John 2, 6, He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. You know what that's saying? If you say you're abiding in him, that you're a, vine on the, a, a branch on the true vine, then what should we do? We should walk as he walked. How did he walk? In obedience to his father's will. Cheerful obedience. Well, all the commands to his followers that we have found in verses 1 to 10, such as, what are some of the commands? Well, he said back in verse 1, abide in me. That was a command. And me and you. Then in verse 7, he said, um, abide in me and my words abide in you. Then we just looked at, he said, continue ye in my love. That's a command. He just gave us another one. Keep my commandments. All of those things are what he means when he says in verse 11, these things. Everything he has told us in the previous 10 verses, including those commands, all those things were spoken, he says in verse 11, for our own good. Why did he give us all these commands to abide in him, to keep his commandments, to continue in his love? They were spoken so that his joy, his joy might remain in us, might abide in us. And that it might be what? Full. How many of you want his joy and full joy? I do. We all do. We want joy. So let's ask, what kind of joy did Jesus have? that he's so willing to share with us and that he wants us to abide in. Well, it was a joy that was present even in the midst of horrific circumstances and even in the face of imminent death. It was a joy known by abiding in his father's will and pleasing his father. When you know you're in the center of God's will, you have a joy. You do. You have a joy. Even if there are terrible circumstances, you know you're in the center of his will and those circumstances are orchestrated by him. It's for your own good. So you can have joy in spite of the circumstances. Right? That's what James said. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. And that's the kind of joy he had. Even if nobody understood him, he knew what he was doing. And he knew he was glorifying his father. He also knew what awaited him once he completed his mission. He had joy looking ahead to what lay before him, didn't he? That's what it says in Hebrews 12, too. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the shame of the cross. And you see, this is the kind of joy, his joy, that he wants for his followers. But he knew that we would only have it as we follow his example. How do we follow his example? By abiding in him as he abode in his father, by obeying him as he obeyed his father, and by keeping our focus set where? On this earth? No. On what lies ahead? Keep your focus on, set your affection on things Above, not on things in this earth. Colossians 3, 2. Memorize that verse because it's so important when you're watching the news at night to say that verse. (laughs) Don't set your focus on this world or your joy will be gone in a second. But set it on what's ahead in eternity. Well, the reason, now I want all of you to smile now and look real joyful. 
Okay? The reason there are so many joyless Christians, and that's none of you, right? <laughs> but there are, have you noticed? There's a lot of sour looking Christians out there. The reason there are so many joyless Christians these days is because there are really so few. We are in the latter days. You know, Jesus said, when I return, will I even find faith in the earth? It's getting smaller and smaller where you can find joyful Christians. The reason there's so many that don't have joy is because they're not walking in the light of the Lord and abiding in the love of the Lord. There are few Christians, really. I'm not just saying this. We're blessed to have this many here this morning. But there are few Christians who are abiding in Christ and fully trusting in him and looking beyond their circumstances to the joy that is set before them in heaven. And if you are one of those who can't smile this morning with true joy emanating from your heart, sincere joy, if you're one of those who has lost your joy, maybe it's because you are too focused on this world and the circumstances of your life and the circumstances of this world and what's going on. My, my son was just instantly deployed the other day over to, he can't tell us, but he was deployed over there somewhere. You know, and if I was looking at circumstances, it could be very worrisome, couldn't it? What's going on over in Africa and the Middle East and everything? I mean, to me, it's exciting because I see the Lord just fulfilling prophecy and Ooh, I think we're going to be out of here soon. But anyway, um, I sure hope so. <laughs> but if you've lost your joy, maybe you are too focused on this earth. Uh, or maybe you've clogged up your fellowship by some kind of uh, unconfessed sin. Or you're not abiding in Christ through his word. I doubt that's true of any of you because you're all here for a study of his word. But there's a lot of joyless Christians out there who are joyless because they're not abiding in his word. And if that is you, or if you know someone who's like that, pray what David prayed. Remember why David lost his joy? Because he sinned with Bathsheba and he had lost the joy of his salvation. So what did he do? He prayed, restore How's it go? Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. He hadn't lost his salvation, but he'd lost the joy of his salvation. So pray that. Well, next in verse 12, the Lord repeated to his disciples one of his primary commands, to love one another as he had loved them. Now, he had earlier referred to this commandment, the same commandment, as a new commandment. Do you remember that back in John 13, 34? Remember how we talked about there's not 10 commandments, there's how many? 11, because there's a new commandment that we love one another. And he's going to repeat it again in verse 17. You'll notice I'm going to finish our lesson with verse 16 because he repeats it down in 17. So I'm not going to talk about verse 17. It's the same commandment, to love one another. So it's obvious since he repeats this so many times... That is something extremely important for his followers to understand and to obey. Now, he has been talking so far about our relationship with him, the branch's relationship with the vine. But now what he does is he transitions to talking about our relationship with one another, the branch's relationship with each other. You see, it's important for the vine that all his little branches <laughs> have positive, loving relationships with one another. If you are a genuine branch, you have 
an inseparable association with all the rest of God's people, the true branches. Regardless of what denomination we're in, regardless of our background, regardless of age, sex, whatever, we're all interrelated, you know, we're all on the same vine, so we're inseparably connected to one another. And it is this relationship with one another that he commands to be one of mutual love. Love flows both ways. There's to be a mutual love for one another. I love you, and whether you want to or not, you have to love me. (laughs) Works both ways. And guess what? Again, it's not an option. He commands it. It is given as a command. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Now, this probably shocked his disciples when they first heard it, because it still shocks many who read it. Why? Because our tendency as human beings is to think of love as an emotion. And we wonder how we can control an emotion. How can we possibly pump up, you know, love for someone that we don't even know? Or someone we don't even like? Have you ever met Christians you don't like? Be honest. I have. I am so glad. You know what? I have found that I can love a fellow believer with the love of God that is shed abroad in my heart, with his love. But I sure have a hard time liking some Christians. But I'm so glad I'm not commanded to like them. (laughs) He doesn't give us a command to like them. He gives us a command. You know, it actually is easier to love than like. I tell my husband sometimes when I'm angry with him, I say, I love you, but I sure don't like you right now. But to be commanded to love, you know, that's strange to human thinking. But, of course, we know that the Lord is commanding something that is far more than an emotion. Far more. Love is not a feeling. It's a what? Act of the will. Love is an act of the will. It's not a feeling. And he enlarges upon that in this passage. In verse 10, he said, Notice this. Go back to verse 10. He said, if we keep his commandments, that's plural, right? Plural. If we keep his commandments. And now in verse 12, what does he do? He reduces all those commandments down to just one. This is my commandment, singular, that you love one another. Now, does it surprise us that out of all the complexity of the things that the Bible demands of us, out of all that could be called the commandments of God, that the Lord would single this one out? Does that surprise us? Not really, because we've been studying his word. It shouldn't surprise us if we know anything at all about his teaching. Love is not just one of the finer points of the law. It is not just one of many commandments in the Bible. It is the all-inclusive summarization of the entire law. Remember the two great commandments? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you love him like that, then you will be able to love your neighbor as yourself. You will be able to love your fellow man. So love encompasses all the law because under all the other commandments come under one of those two categories, don't they? You know, all of our uh, relationships with one another could be reduced to that one. Love one another. So love is the fulfillment of the law. Now his subject turns to keeping this commandment because this is how the vine itself, how he himself will be fruitful. 
A healthy vine, you know this, a healthy vine has to have healthy, abiding, loving branches for it to bear fruit. Wouldn't be good for the vine if all of the vine's branches are fighting and quarreling and tangling themselves up with each other, would it? No. So he says to his followers, love one another. And then he states the extent to which he expects us to do this. And he does it by way of a comparison. How do we love one another? How much do we love one another? Here it is. Ooh, and it's a biggie. As I have loved you. Now, it's an amazing thing that this one man could stand before his disciples and make that statement without any hesitation whatsoever. Just imagine yourself coming up here behind this pulpit and saying to everyone else, I am the total embodiment of what I am asking you to do. (laughs) I have gone farther than any of you have ever gone. I am the ideal. Now you do as I have done. Can you imagine saying that? He's not talking about something like teaching. Teach like I teach or or heal like I heal or or do this. He's talking about the, the matter of love. And he's saying, I am the ideal. And yet, he says it without any fear whatsoever that there will ever be a contradiction to that statement. He says it with the knowledge that nothing will ever surpass the example of his love. So how can he be so sure that he is the supreme example? Well, that's where verse 13 comes in. He states the extent to which he expects us to love by giving us his own demonstration of it. And what is it? Greater, say it all together, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Now, how many of you know what an aphorism is? A what? (laughs) An aphorism. Anybody? had one yesterday. Come on, you English. A-P-H-O-R-I-S-M. You've heard of it. Go home and look it up in your dictionaries. It is a useful, brief, you know, compact statement of a principle. Other aphorisms, for example, are turn the other cheek or love is blind. Love is blind. Um, Another aphorism would be uh, go the second mile. Or an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Or how about this one? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Those are aphorisms. Now, much of Jesus' teaching has been analyzed and compiled, put together mostly by unbelievers, to come up with these aphorisms. And they go about, you know, you'll hear it even on the television, and they'll do these little aphor, they'll say these little aphorisms, and that'll be like the summarization of Jesus' teaching. You know, you'll hear Jesus said, turn the other cheek, right? You hear that on the news. Or Jesus said, uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Those are aphorisms. And they include this, verse 13, as one of them. However... When the Lord made this statement, greater love hath no man, etc., he wasn't coming out with just another great and memorable one-liner. He wasn't just coming out with another little aphorism. 
When he said this, his soul was filled with everything that would be the fulfillment of that statement in less than 12 hours. When he spoke these words, he was referring to what he himself was about to do. Now, his disciples at this time, when they heard him make this statement, they still had no idea what he was going to be doing later on that same day. They still had a lot of people who call themselves Christians still really have no understanding of what Jesus did that day and the significance of it. You know, he was going to drag a rough-hewn, heavily splintered cross himself up to the hill called Golgotha. And this would be after he had endured a horrific, heinous scourging that left him so that he didn't even resemble a man anymore. And you know, it was the common practice of the Roman soldiers when they would get to the place of crucifixion with their victims, that they would then grab the victims and have to fling them down on their crosses, all the while struggling to hold those victims there because the victims weren't doing it easily. You know, they would be struggling and kicking and screaming and yelling and spitting in their faces and doing everything they possibly could. It would take more than one Roman soldier to keep hold a victim down while they then spiked their hands and feet. Awful. Just awful to picture crucifixion. You know, listening to the curses, they'd be cursing them and screaming. But you see, none of this, none of this was necessary for the Lord Jesus. He didn't curse them. He didn't scream. He didn't bite. He didn't struggle. He didn't fight. He didn't spit in their faces, although earlier others had spit in his face. You know what he did? He prayed for them. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And they didn't have to grab him and throw him down while he's fighting and struggling. And they nail the nails in his hands and feet. He voluntarily laid himself down on his cross. Nobody had to grab him. Nobody had to fight him. Nobody had to throw him down. Nobody had to hold him in place so they could hammer large nails into him while he struggled. The soldiers, can't you imagine, they, they'd never seen anything like this before. This man voluntarily laid down on his own cross, stretched his arms out so they could spike him to that cross, meekly crossed his feet one over the other so they could drive one single nail into both of them. He did that while praying for them, not cursing, just they, they must have been overwhelmed at the calm compliance of this man. Surely this was the Son of God. You see what he was doing? What was he doing? Voluntarily laying down his life. Isn't that what he just said? Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life. Nobody took his life. Nobody flung him down. He laid it down voluntarily. Why? Why did he do that? He did it for his friends. He did it for his friends. 
Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Now, some have said, well, that's, that's a contradiction to, um, I've lost my place, to what it says in uh, Romans 5.8. You know what it says in Romans 5.8? For God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so they say, why did he say here in John 15 that he laid down his life for his friends? Why did he say that that was the greatest demonstration of love? Wouldn't it be a greater demonstration of love to lay down your life for your enemies? Hmm? So they say there's a contradiction. But you know what? There is no contradiction here between, between Romans 5.8 and John 15.13 because the Lord has no friends that were not at one time his enemies. Does he? Did you know we were all, before we were saved, we were all at enmity with Jesus? No natural man, meaning no unregenerated, no unsaved man, welcomes God, except to the extent that they feel like they need him. You know, even an atheist, if he's dying, you know, he'll give a foxhole prayer sometimes. Help me, save me, God. But no natural man really feels like he needs God or wants God unless at the last minute he needs him. But when it comes to obeying the commands of God or when it comes to order, having him order our lives or holding us responsible and then saying that one day he's going to hold, uh, call us into account for every single word, thought, motive, attitude that we've ever had. When it comes to those kinds of things, God is a fearful being, Right? You think about, I'm going to have to stand and give an account for my life to him? So the natural man doesn't like that. He doesn't want to be commanded what to do and what not to do and have his life ordered and being held responsible and then accountable. So what does he do? He does everything possible to change the truth about God in his mind. Don't we see that out in the world? People try to change what God is really like in their minds. A lot of people um, make him into a benevolent kind of a Santa Claus where he's just going to wink at sin. And Okay, that's all right. You go on ahead. And only the Hitlers and the, um, what's that guy today? Omar Gaddafi. <laughs> what a character. Um, not funny. He's an awful person. But those are the only kind of people, you know, that won't make it to heaven. The natural man will try to explain God away. Just say, well, he doesn't really exist. When people come to understand that God is a certain way and that he is the, a way that they don't want him to be, there's an animosity toward him that is aroused in their hearts. And it is because why? Their conscience condemns them. And they know that they are guilty before him. When Jesus died, you know who he died for? He died for a race of enemies. All of us were his enemies. But the good news is that when enemy sinners receive what he did for them, when he laid down his life for them, they become his, his friends. Now, the Lord's example of laying down his life is given to us as our expectation of love, our relationship with one another. That's what he expects of us to do for one 
are to love one another. In other words, I'm to be willing to lay down my life for you, and you're to be willing to lay down your life for me. Is that a pretty high expectation? Yeah, you better believe it. What does he do? He lifts love out of the realm of emotion, and he puts it into the realm of action. Now, when we hear this, one of two things automatically happen. Number one, when we hear these words of his, that this is to be our kind of love for one another, we are dismissive of them. That's the first reaction. This is an aphorism that we have heard much of our lives. It's too familiar to us. It's the same old teaching about loving. And it has become such a generality in our minds that it has no practical outworking in our lives. You know, we heard it. We heard it again this morning. We're going to leave here. It's not really going to change our lives. That's one way we respond to these words. Second way is that if we really dwell on them and we really understand what he is saying to us here, we can be brought to despair. You leave here, you say, I don't want to think about that. That's just too, that's just too depressing because I know that I, I, I'm having trouble just loving my neighbor as myself, much less laying down my life for you guys. Right? Isn't that what we think? There's no way I can do that. And without him, we could do nothing, could we? We couldn't even begin to love like this. But this is one of those areas that we can pray about. And we can confidently pray knowing that the Father will answer because we know this is his will that we love one another with Christ's kind of love. So we can pray that we would increase in our love toward one another. It's the first mentioned fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? Love, joy, peace. Isn't love the first mentioned fruit of the Spirit? So if we are a true branch on the vine, the love of God will be shed abroad in our hearts by the Spirit supernaturally. We will have a supernatural love for one another that just comes about by abiding on the vine and letting the words of the Lord abide in us. So we don't have to sit around waiting for a change in our emotional state. We just abide and the love will come. But on the practical level, don't just sit there and wait for love. On the practical level, we can begin to pray today to increase in love and we can begin to look for opportunities to love one another, to get involved in the lives of others instead of hoping that we don't need to. <laughs> Hoping nobody will call on us. <laughs> uh, we can consciously war, battle. It's actually more than a battle. It's a war. We can war against our own self-absorption. Hmm. And we are all self-absorbed. We can decide to put hands and feet. This is one where I'm really guilty. Put hands and feet to our good intentions instead of just forgetting to carry them out. I have written every one of you a wonderful letter this year. I've made lots of phone calls to you, too. You just didn't get them. I mean, they were there in my mind. I had every intention of doing it. Just never got done. <laughs> and we can increase in our self-sacrificing love. We can soften our voices and our tones when we disagree with each other. Why? Because we love. If we're having difficulties with someone, 
someone we don't like. We love them, but we don't like them. <laughs> if we're having difficulties, love will instinctively instruct us on how to approach them. And if you're having problems with somebody, let time pass. Don't go to them immediately when you're upset about something, okay? Let time pass. I've always found that if I let some time pass, love will take over. And I'll be able to go to them if I do, because I usually have Terry do that for me. <laughs> But if I have to go to them, I at least give them a little time and then my voice is softened down. <laughs> if you're angry, in other words, don't talk until love settles you down. Love will take the bitterness out. Love sacrifices its anger and its rights and its hurts and its offenses and its opinionatedness, doesn't it? Love will lay down its life. My love for you will lay down my rights. And I can say I've done that. I've, I've laid down a lot of my rights in order to be able to teach you. You've laid down a lot of your rights so that you can serve the Lord, right? Love will lay down its own rights. It will sacrifice itself. And this is the kind of mutual love among the branches that keeps the vine healthy. Now, do you think the disciples needed this command very badly? Oh, yeah. I <laughs> think we need it. Yeah. But, you know, you couldn't get those men together for very long before they were fighting among themselves, weren't they? Or they were jockeying for positions on who was going to be in the great seats in the kingdom, etc. So they needed this commandment just like you and I do. And it must have been great for them to hear Jesus call them friends, especially after in the upper room, he just told them that one of them would betray him and all of them would scatter from him. And they must have thought he'll never like us again. And here he says, I have called you friends. And what he then goes on to do in verses 14 and 15 was to elaborate on the relationship that loving gives to us with him. He said, verse 14, ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I command you. He is characterizing people who respond to him by obeying this command. So he's saying here, you are my friends, that characterizes you, if you do what I command. Now remember, all of this is given within the context of him teaching about abiding in him. And of course, what his disciples probably initially thought when he's talking about abiding in him, they would be thinking of staying with him physically. And that's exactly what they wanted to do. Remember, Peter said, Lord, we don't want you to leave. I'll give my life for you. Wherever you're going, I want to be with you. Just let me abide with you. That's what they all wanted. So they'd be thinking physically. But now he's teaching them that there is an abiding in him that goes far beyond the physical realm. And it is really much more intimate. And it comes this way. It comes this way. His words abide in us. And that is him right? Abiding in us. And when we keep those words, that is us abiding in him. And now he says, if we do that, that gives us a characteristic. What is that characteristic? We are his friends. We are his friends. And that's great. That's wonderful. But when we read the rest of that statement, it kind of takes the wind out of our sails. Because he says, if ye, are, if ye are my, or ye are my friends, if, if ye do whatsoever I command you. And our minds can't help but sort of think, 
Well, that's really nice, Lord. Wonderful. I do want to be your friend, but it really sounds more like a slave than a friend. You will count us your friends if we obey you. Sounds like a servant, doesn't it? Well, guess what? Got news for you. We are his servants. We are his servants. We are his bond servants. The word in Greek is doulos. We are his bond slaves. But now listen to this. There is a great difference in being a slave who has to obey and being a bond servant slash friend who wants to obey. Big time difference. And to better explain this, because to me this is the best part of the whole passage this morning, is this friendship stuff. But to explain this better, I want to um, illustrate from the Old Testament, but because it takes time to wait for you to turn there, I'm just going to tell you where I'm going. And you might want to write this down because it's not in your notes. But over in Numbers 12, we can drop in on an incident in the life of Moses. On this particular occasion in Numbers 12, Moses was being accused by his brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, for having married an Ethiopian woman. And guess what? God stood up for Moses and he said in Numbers 12, 6, he said this, If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known to him in a vision and will speak to him in a dream. Back in those days... God would speak to his spokesmen, his prophets, through visions and dreams. So that's what he says. But he goes on in verse 7 and says, But it's not that way with my servant Moses. What did I say? Servant Moses. He says in verse 7, My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. And he goes on and says, With him, with Moses, I speak mouth to mouth And not in dark speeches. You know, not things difficult to understand. I speak to him mouth to mouth, face to face, clearly, so that he understands me. But what did he call him? His servant, Moses. But there's another incident in Moses' life, and this is over in Exodus 33. If we want to see what God meant when he talked about talking to Moses face to face, talking to Moses face to face, in Exodus 33, 11... It says, quote, the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaketh to his friend. So over in Numbers, it's my servant Moses. But in Exodus, he said, I spoke face to face because I spoke to him as I spoke to a friend. So you put those two passages together and we have Moses, God's servant and Moses, God's friend right and for time's sake i could do the same thing with abraham it is done in your notes abraham was both the servant of god and also he was called in isaiah 41 8 the friend of god now what is it that is illustrated in both moses and abraham's lives by the way the only two old testament people to have ever been called the friends of god moses and Abraham, and I think they represent the law and the prophets or the law and the patriarchs. I think they represent all true believers. Um, what is it that, illust- that illustrates, uh, that we have illustrated for us? Well, it is that God didn't hide things from them, did he? You know, he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and he said, 
Should I hide this from my friend, Abraham? No, I won't hide this. I'll tell him what I'm going to do. I'll tell him my plan for the future because he's my friend. I can confide in him. He revealed intimate things to Moses and to Abraham. When he talked to them, he talked to them face to face as he speaks to a friend. He didn't speak in dark speeches. And now the incarnate God, the very same one who had talked to Moses face to face and who had talked to Abraham face to face, the very same one says in John 15, 15, henceforth, I call you not servants for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends for all things, all things that I have heard of my father, I have made known unto you. What he's saying to his disciples and consequently to you and I is that a slave doesn't know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends and you should know that by now. Our relationship has been characterized by intimacy for some three years now. All things, everything I've heard from my father, I have made known to you face to face. Wasn't that true? Walked with him day and night for three years, mouth to mouth. You are my friends because I have confided in you. I have taken you into my confidence. I have trusted you with great truths. And he did. Those apostles were entrusted with tremendous truths. They didn't fully get them yet, but they would. And they were really entrusted to be the foundation of the church. Are you and I entrusted with great truths? Oh, even greater. We confide in our friends, don't we? If you have a friend that is really your friend, you know you can trust that person with your confidential things of your life. But a slave is just an instrument to carry out duties. A master does not explain to his slave what what he's doing or why he's doing it. He just gives the slave orders, gives him orders, and he's expected to carry those orders out. But you explain things to a friend. This is why I'm doing this. This is my motive, and this is, you know, etc. You explain. You confide your heart about what you're doing and why you're doing it. It says, the secret of the Lord, secrets of the Lord, are with them that fear him. Have we been entrusted with a lot of secrets? There is such a thing as being allowed into the secrets of the Lord. You know that? That's what we come here every Tuesday and do. The world out there doesn't have a clue about some of the secrets we know in here. And they're not really secret. It's just that they refuse to open up this book and have those secrets revealed to them. They refuse to dig. You know, the further you dig in this book, the more secrets you find. It's amazing. It's wonderful. But there's a lot of God's people who do not seem to experientially know what it is like to have God confide in them through his word. They read the same lines of scripture, maybe as someone in the same pew as them in church. And they look over and that person is weeping and they're getting it. And there's, I can see it in your face. I see it in the nods of your heads. I see it in the smiles. I see sometimes the tears. I see when you're getting it. And I see when you're not getting it. I see when you're snoozing. And I see when you're looking at your watch. <laughs> Nothing passes my eye. <laughs> but have you noticed that? And it has nothing to do whatsoever with someone's advanced Bible training. It's not only the PhDs that get all the secrets. Sometimes they miss them, don't they? And it's the little old lady who's never been to Bible school. But she has a spirit of God flowing through her capillaries. <laughs> and just, you know, she's taking her Lipitor every day and she's getting it. 
<laughs> She's getting it, and that PhD guy is just out there. You know, and I have a clue what's going on. Sorry to say it, but that's all too often true. We can be instructed as Mary of Bethany. Why was Mary of Bethany so spiritually tuned in more than anybody else, more than any of the disciples who followed him for three years? Why? Because her capillaries weren't clogged. She was letting the sap flow through her as she sat at the feet of Jesus and just abided in his words. And she got it. She got a lot of spiritual enlightenment. But remember, even though I'm almost finished, even though we are his friends, guess what? We will also always be his bondservants. Moses was. Abraham was. That's not going to change. He is the Lord of lords. And we are his servants. But we're not confined to that alone. He said to his disciples, henceforth, I don't call you slaves I have revealed to you all that my father has taught me that you should know. So you are my friends. I have confided in you. You're my friends. You're my servants, yes. But you're also my friends. And think about it, as Terry just said a minute ago. If he could say that to them back then, and they didn't have one single book of the New Testament yet, they hadn't written them. Paul wasn't around. He, Paul was still an unbeliever. What could he say to you and I today? We have so much more than they had. He has confided in you and I so much more. We have the completed canon of Scripture. We have the book of Revelation. We know, we know what history is all about. We know the, how the story ends. We know that the good guys win, right? Yes, we know that. I, I watched, you know, I watch the news. I do need to keep up with things, so I do watch the news. But sometimes I get so upset and I say, why aren't they getting it? Why are they so dumb? I mean, we have a very corrupt, uh, blinded media, don't we? Very corrupt. And society. It's just like everything is upside down. And they're just a bunch of morons out there. I hate to be so cruel, but it, and I, I sometimes have to turn the TV off because I get so angry. I say, why aren't they getting it? I'll tell you why they're not getting it. Because they're not his friends. They haven't been confided in from the word of God. They don't know the secrets you and I know. We could get in there on the news and tell them, and of course they'd laugh in our faces, but we could tell them what's going on right now. Hey, guess what? The world is getting ready for that war of Gog and Magog. Don't you notice? Have you noticed? It's getting everything ready. All the pieces are together. But they would laugh at us. But anyway, they don't have a clue. But don't get proud. Don't get proud. Because this isn't our doing. None of this is our doing. It isn't because we're his friends, because we have proven to be such prized pupils that he finally decided that he would confide in us all his marvelous truths as his friends. We did not find him. Guess what? He found us. And that's what he says in verse 16. And we'll read this, discuss it, and we'll close. He says to his men in verse 16, look at it. Ye have not chosen me. But I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go forth and bring, should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatsoever ye shall ask of the father in my name, he may give it you. He's saying here, you didn't choose me. 
It wasn't you. You're my friends. I've let you in on my confidence. You know the intimacies of my heart, but you weren't the ones who made the choice about our relationship. Now, do you think that this was news to these men? I guarantee you it was. Because if you had asked, I'll just take an example of two of them. If you had asked Andrew and John for their testimony, you know what they would have said? They would have said, well, three and a half years ago, we were disciples of John the Baptist. And then one day down there at the Jordan River, Jesus approached John. John looked at him and said, behold, the Lamb of God, which cometh to take away the sins of the world. And we said, hey, that's a good idea. Let's follow him. So we followed him. That's, isn't that what we usually do when we give our testimonies? Just like that. But if we had asked Jesus about it, you know what he would have said? He would have said that he was there at the Jordan River that day with John the Baptist because he was seeking Andrew and John, who he knew would then go get their brothers, Peter and James. He was the one, he would tell us, who spotted Nathaniel when Nathaniel was sitting under a fig tree and didn't even yet know who Jesus was. He would say that he was the one who went over to self-serving Levi, who was squeezing extra tax money out of the pockets of even his own people and said, follow me. He would say all that. It was the Lord's choosing. And this, is where the security of the believer lies. Remember, there are only two kinds of branches, right? There are fruit-bearing branches and there are non-fruit-bearing branches. There are true branches and there are false branches. He chose us to be the true branches. But don't misunderstand me. I'm not finished yet. Don't leave right here. I'm not a Calvinist, okay? (laughs) It wasn't that we didn't have a decision to make because we did. When John said, behold, the Lamb of God, Andrew and John had to make a decision to get up and follow Jesus. When he saw Nathanael under the fig tree and said, behold, a man in whom was no guile and said, come and follow me. What did Nathanael have to do? Get up from under that fig tree and follow. When he went to Levi and said, follow me, Levi had to get up and become Matthew and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. All those disciples, when chosen, did get up and they did follow. The thing is, we did not initiate the relationship. We didn't seek him. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seeketh after God. We didn't choose him out of a whole gamut of religious rulers and decide, well, I'm going to choose Jesus, not Buddha. We didn't make that decision. Fact is, we weren't even seeking him. He drew us with the cords of his love and his spirit opened our hearts that we might understand the gospel. And the whole time, what was it? God drawing us to his son. And because he initiated it, and because it is by his ordination, as he said, that we go and bear fruit, We have security, and we can know that we will bear fruit. I'm not bragging, but I can stand up here and say, because I have been chosen by him, and I got up and followed him, and I am a true vine on the branch, I will bear fruit. I can say that. And if you're a true branch, you can say that. You will bear fruit. You know why? 
Because he that hath begun a good work in you will perform it. He will complete what he has begun. All of us he will bring to perfection. We will all bear fruit. Isn't that good news? 